0: The Thomistic Institute's Study Abroad Program is currently accepting applications for the spring of 2023. Our program, Ancient and Medieval Rome, Crossroads of Intellectual Traditions, brings university students from around the world to the heart of the eternal city of Rome. They'll live just minutes from the Colosseum and they'll study at the world-renowned Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Visit ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash Rome to learn more. Financial aid and scholarships are available to qualifying students. This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My talk this evening is on the Christian doctrine of creation and some of the ramifications of what it means to be a creature And the bulk of what I'll be saying is reliant on the guidance of two great teachers, St. Thomas Aquinas, a Dominican friar from the 13th century, and Joseph Pieper, a German philosopher from the 20th century. So the major parts of my talk will focus on Aquinas' teaching on creation and Pieper's reception of that teaching. Uh, We'll also have time for questions um, afterwards. So if a question comes to you, don't raise your hand, but remember it, or even write it down if you want, so that we can have something of a a lively give and take after the talk. Before launching into the main part of the talk, though, we should clarify the term itself of what do I mean by creation. So what I do not mean is um, animals, trees, rivers, flora, fauna. I don't mean creation in the sense of the natural world. I also don't mean creation in the sense of any kind of human making, any artistic... Uh, artifice. And I'm also not specifically speaking as in a sort of exegetical way about what happens in Genesis 1 through 3. And we'll also be setting aside the question of creationism or evolution. Those are debates that don't really have anything to bear on the topic of creation as I'll be speaking about it today. So what do I mean? What's the initial working understanding of creation? I want to talk about creation as a dependence of the created being on its principle, on its source, on the thing from which it comes. Creation is a relation between creature and creator. So I want to turn first to St. Thomas Aquinas say a few words about the man himself and the enduring influence of his thoughts. St. Thomas was Italian. He was born in about 1225 in Naples. When he was 16, he joined the newly formed, at that time, order of preachers. So he would have dressed almost exactly like me. Um, And he uh, entered against the wishes of his family. He went to Paris and Rome and studied there, was ordained a priest. And then he was essentially a teacher for the rest of his life in many different places in Europe, Cologne, Naples, Orvieto, Rome, Paris. He worked in the papal curia. He taught in the different priories of his order. Um, He oversaw schools. He developed curricula and he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. St. Thomas wrote, it's estimated some 8 million words. um, For context, and it's a terrible thing to compare the two, but Harry Potter um, is about 1 million words in entirety. So multiply that by 8 and make it slightly more complex and theologically rich, uh, and you have St. Thomas (laughs) Aquinas' output. So he was incredibly productive, and he died when he was 50. So he worked with a really tremendous tremendous output. Uh, But near the end of his life, there was a peculiar silence. He celebrated Mass in December in 1273, and then he just stopped writing. He experienced something, and uh, he walked back into his office, and he just said, I I cannot write anymore. Uh, Compared with what I've seen, everything I've written is just so much straw. And he died soon after. He was canonized in 1323, and He has remained for the Dominicans especially a real um, teacher uh, throughout the centuries and uh, not just for the Dominicans. So why should you gather in this room to hear about the words of some man who's been dead for almost 800 years? Um, It's because the Catholic Church has recommended St. Thomas over and over and over again as a teacher. And the Church has done this in a way that's really unparalleled. The Second Vatican Council on two occasions has recommended St. Thomas by name, and that might not sound like a big deal, but then you consider that no ecumenical council in the history of the church had ever named a theologian to be taken as a teacher. So that's a big deal. So 2,000 years, and then they're naming St. Thomas. So he's worthwhile not just for Dominicans, not just for people who are interested in medieval theology, but now he is a present- safe, uh, secure, trustworthy teacher, and he'll be our teacher tonight. So to go through his teaching on creation, obviously we can't look at everything in depth, but we can give a sense of what he means by creation. Um, If we're keeping score at home, the major sections on creation in his corpus are found in the Summa Contra Gentiles 2, the Summa Theologiae 1, questions 44 through 49, and then the question is disputate de potencia de, uh, disputed questions on the power of God, questions three through five. So he deals, we will focus mostly on the Summa Theologiae. And near the start of his treatment on creation there, Aquinas says, quote, it must be said that every being in any way existing is from God. Every being that exists is in some way from God. So you could say that the Christian doctrine of creation is in some way about that question. How is it that we and the world and the cosmos are from God? The question of creation has universal scope. Thomas writes, quote, We must consider not only the emanation of a particular being from a particular agent, so it's not just about thinking about me and how I come forth from God, but also about the emanation of all being from the universal cause, which is God. And this emanation, he says, we designate by the name of creation. So all being coming from the universal cause, which is God. One of the first points St. Thomas makes about creation is that it's ex nihilo. It's out of nothing. Creare est aliquid ex nihilo facere. To create is to make something out of nothing. Here's the argument he gives for that. So he says what proceeds by particular emanation, which is a phrase that's hard to understand. So what, what comes forth from something is not presupposed to that emanation. So it's not, it's a very simple point. What comes forth is not presupposed beforehand. To make that clear, let's say that if you're going to paint this beige wall red, it becomes, it's made red out of what is not red. Again, don't overthink it. It's, it's a simple point. It's just to say that Creation is out of nothing. There's nothing that's presupposed. Now take, so we've talked about walls, take all being in the universe. If the emanation of the whole universal being from the first principle be considered, it's impossible, St. Thomas says, that any being should be presupposed. So if you're talking about being coming forth, it has to come forth from what is not being, from non-being, which is the same as nothing. So creation is out of nothing creation, which is the emanation of all being, is from the not-being, which is nothing. To help shed light on what St. Thomas is up to in his writings on creation, it's also imperative to understand the distinction between a thing's essence and its existence. Um, You can think of a thing's essence as what it is, and its existence as that it is. Why is that important? So, God is sheer existence. He just is existence. The Latin phrase St. Thomas uses is ipsum esse per se subsistens, being itself subsisting through itself. So what's that mean? That means that who God is and that God is are one and the same thing. God's very being is existence. His essence, like what he is, is identical with his existence, that he is. So if you say, "Well, what is God?" that will the answer to that will include the um, this affirmation that He is. Um, the one of the readings for uh, Sunday uh, in the Mass will be Exodus three. Um, it well, it's one of the options of readings. You might not hear it, um, but it's where God says to Moses, "I am who am." It's Exodus three fourteen, I think. Don't don't, don't fact check me on that, but I think it is. Um, so God is sheer existence. And everything else that is not God is not sheer existence, but it receives its existence. It receives its essays to be from God as a gift. So in contrast with God, so in God, what he is and that he is equal each other. They are the same thing. In us, that's not the case. So what a man is, is not the same as the fact that he is. Our essay is distinct from our essentia. Our existence is a gift. God is the one who makes all things, who gives being to all things. He is being. We have being. We are beings by participation. So all existence might come from God. Um, One sort of side observation you can make about that is uh, how generous God is. God doesn't create out of any sort of need. He creates out of goodness and love. There's nothing we have that he needs. He's created out of nothing. So there's nothing out there that he lacks. So his act of creation itself is purely generous in a way that we really can't conceive. We don't have any experience of that on a created level, but that God's creation is simply purely generous. Another important thing to think about when you're considering creation, is that creation is not a change. That's important. It's not a change. Why? So if you're going to have a change, that means you have something that changed. You have the thing that is here, and then it changes, and it's over here, but different. But again, remember the first point, that creation is out of nothing. So there's no sort of underlying subject that undergoes a change in creation. St. Thomas says this, when anyone makes one thing from another, this latter thing from which he makes is presupposed to his action and is not produced by his action. So a carpenter will make a bench out of wood. So the wood changes. St. Thomas says then, if God did only act from something presupposed, like a carpenter with wood, it would follow that the thing presupposed would not be caused by him. Hence, it's necessary to say that God brings things into being from nothing. So, creation is not a change. It's not a change. We might speak about it as a change in a sense, but strictly speaking, it's best to speak about creation as God making out of nothing. Because again, any creation, or we might talk, obviously talk about how we create things. I can... I could create a bad paper airplane if I wanted to right now. Um, But again, strictly speaking, I'm not creating it. I'm fashioning it, making it, constructing it. And the paper itself is changing. But when God creates, he is calling into existence what did not exist beforehand. There's nothing underlying. There's no stage of becoming in creation. Connected to that, um, and this is hard to wrap your mind around, but it's also, again, well, I'm saying everything's important, but this is important. Um, St. Thomas disconnects the concept of creation from time. And this can really bend you, but it's, it's very important. When St. Thomas was writing, uh, the question of whether or not the world had been around forever, if the world was eternal, was a huge, huge, huge debate. Um, and St. Thomas was actually on the minority side. So another great theologian, a Franciscan, St. Bonaventure, who was a contemporary of St. Thomas's, Um, held very vehemently that you could prove by reason alone without having to appeal to faith that the world had a beginning in time. And this was generally the majority opinion among theologians. Um, And St. Thomas took the minority position. He said, well, no, um, it's theoretically defensible that the world has existed from all eternity. And that doesn't threaten God's sovereignty. And it doesn't threaten the fact that God created the world. And that's confusing because we're very used to thinking about creation as something that happened in the past, and then we've moved on from it. Um, but no, it's, St. Thomas is making the point that if creation is dependence on God for being itself, you could theoretically have an eternal world that still eternally relies on God for its being. Um, Again, and that helps you see that it's, again, creation is something that's happening right now, actually. We're all being created at this moment. That might be a destabilizing thing to think about. So, think about that later tonight. You're just being created right now. Um, And that this could have been the case if the world existed from all eternity. Thomas, though, of course, he grants that we know by revelation that there was a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, we accept that it is the case that the world has a temporal beginning, but we only know that by faith. You can't necessarily demonstrate it. Um, so again, that's to say that creation is dependence on God, dependence of us on God for being. And I think it's interesting to note, again, it's more of a side sidebar, that the instinct of the eternity of the world being a, an admissible theory at least, is still alive in the academy today in the sciences, you might say. If you, if you want to you know, YouTube what was before the Big Bang, you'll run into like, Stephen Hawking talking about how that's a nonsensical question. Like that, you know, and, it's, and that's not in itself a, a, an opinion that you can just sneer at. It's, I don't know if Stephen Hawking is running through the Aristotelian argument for the eternity of the world but the idea that the world might just have always existed is something that isn't immediately dismissible, even though we know by faith that it is uh, the case that it does have a temporal beginning. Sorry, that's a windy sidebar. But to recap on St. Thomas on creation, um, if there's one thing you should take away to help understand this, um, I have a prop. So this is very important. If you remember... One thing from this entire talk, please remember this, okay? Creation is not this. Okay. Creation is not that. Creation is this. All right. Creation is not God setting something out and leaving it to be and stepping away. So uh, for the recording, Father Jonah has placed a box of chalk on a table, and then he looked at the whole uh, room, and then he picked it back up. Um, So, creation is not this. Creation is this. That God at every moment is actively willing the existence of everything that is, including you, right now. Which is overwhelming to think about. That at this moment our existence depends on God's active will. That he is, in a sense, saying to us right now, be. Exist. Be. Be at every moment, and that this is something that he has to be intimately close to our being, that, at the roots of it, to be the center, the, the core of our being, to be the, its source, its principle, and that he's not distant in any way from our existence because what would undergird us? What would hold us up? You know, there's no alternative table to God. There is, you know, there's God is being, and we participate in his being by his gift. So creation is not that it is this. All right, if half the room wants to go, that's fine. Um, So it's now going to exist over here, though. Um, But that's fine. Don't worry about it. It still exists. So creation is God giving existence to all things simultaneously and now. It's a relation of dependence. A thing is created because it has a relation to God. And that's the fundamental fact that undergirds absolutely anything you could experience in the cosmos, from you, to a hippo, to a galaxy, all things are because they're actively willed into existence at every moment by God. Now, this concept, this understanding of creation necessarily affects how you think about the world, how you think about the human person. And there are a number of different things that we could focus on. Creation can come into play on almost any different topic. For the sake of time, we won't talk about every topic. I want to focus just on a couple of aspects of reality through the lens of creation, and I'll do so by following the teaching of Joseph Pieper. Pieper was a German philosopher. He was born in 1904. He died not so long ago, in 97. Um, He started studying philosophy in 1925, Um, at the University of Munster, but he was uh, disappointed and he started teaching himself philosophy soon after because what he found was that the faculty there at the university were interested in teaching him the history of philosophy. Essentially, they would teach him that this person said this and then this person said this and then someone else said this and then someone else said this and then someone else said said something about all of those people and then someone else said something about what this person said about that person um, and so on. And he didn't care. What he cared about was what was true. He said he doesn't, he wasn't interested in what other people had said. He was interested in the truth of things. So he started trying to teach himself philosophy. He was married, he's the father of three. He eventually became a professor of philosophy. He published over 70 works. They have subsequently been translated into 16 languages. And again, he died um, in 97. Uh, in his Studies he wrote in his autobiography, I do not want to know what others thought, but what is the truth of things. In particular, he was drawn to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. And even more in particular, he was really captivated by Aquinas' teaching on creation. It really entranced him. And peepers of the mind that creation is the hidden key to St. Thomas Aquinas' thought. So if you want to sound, well, I guess it would be kind of pedantic, but if you want to try to sound smart, you can just say, um, well, you know, the key to St. Thomas's thought is, is creation, of course. Um, and then you can you know, try to get out of the conversation as fast as you can, so you don't have to say anything else after that. Um, but Pieper is convinced that creation, this insight into what creation is, is really undergirding a lot of what St. Thomas says, and it's certainly true of Pieper himself. He writes, in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, there is a fundamental idea by which almost all the basic concepts of his vision of the world are determined, the idea of creation, or more precisely, the notion that nothing exists which is not creatura, except the creator himself. And in addition, that this createdness determines entirely and all pervasively the inner structure of the creature. So that's people writing about Aquinas, but you can easily just flip the names and apply this to much of Pieper's work. If you read, pick up almost any book by Joseph Pieper, you will find that the idea of creation or man as a creature um, comes into play at a really key moment for him at almost every argument he wants to make. So you could say that Joseph Pieper's life work, the overarching topic of his philosophy, the starting point of his thought, was tracing the consequences of creation on the level of just about anything, human nature, death, hope, celebration, leisure, the virtues, tradition, philosophy. And given how creation plays a pivotal role in all of his talks, again, I just want to focus on a couple of examples to show how Pieper takes Aquinas's doctrine of creation and then essentially meditates on it and uses it to help him understand. Thank you. Um, Other topics. So we'll focus on a couple of things. One, the truth of all things and their knowability and love. So first, the truth of all things. What does it mean to say that anything that is, is true? Everything that is, is true. This is a statement that the Western tradition has has held. Um, Kant thought it was tautological, And Pieper took it as his project, he wrote a a book on this, um, to attempt to address this question of how did that statement, the truth of all things, or that anything that is, is true, how did that get hollowed out and lose its meaning? And for him, a key is creation. Everything that has being also has truth. So truth of a being consists in its being oriented towards a mind that knows it. If there, wasn't a, if there was somehow an object and there were no intellects anywhere, there would be no truth, because truth requires an object and a mind. And this relationship between mind and reality is actualized by the minds having in some way the form of that thing in itself. This I'm just this is a broad sweep. I'm just gonna broad sweep. I'm gonna presuppose just Aristotelian epistemology. Unabashedly, and just say that this is presupposing that the form of the thing can be present to the mind. Now, how can people make the claim that the truth of a being consists in orientation towards a knowing mind? Because it's obvious that you can have a multitude of different minds in this. Well, we have different minds in this room. I can presume that there would be an object that could have a different. We could have different opinions about it. So, what's that mean? Does that mean there are multiple truths? No. Pieper cites a passage from Aquinas' De Veritate, on truth. Quote, A natural thing is placed between two knowing subjects, that is, between the divine intellect and the human intellect. So, we'll say we have thing, divine intellect, I will just say human. So, a natural thing is placed between two knowing subjects, the divine intellect and the human intellect. The truth of a thing is dependent not on its relationship to any created mind, but to the divine mind that is itself the cause of its existence. Again, remember, God is speaking creation at all times. It is a never-ending act of existence. An object that is known can be oriented towards the knowing mind either intrinsically or accidentally. What do we mean? So that means that here, this is intrinsic. I don't know why I'm doing a dotted line. So don't, if you're trying to take notes, this doesn't mean anything. Um, All right. So an object that's known is oriented towards a knowing mind, either intrinsically or accidentally. An intrinsic relationship, so this one, exists when the object in its being depends on the knowing mind, depends on it. The accidental relationship, in contrast, exists when the object is merely perceived by the mind. So, the fact that, uh, you know, most of y'all have never seen me, I don't, maybe no one, well, actually, no, Peter has seen me before. Dang. Okay. Um, so, with the exception of Peter, before today, no one had seen me before. But that didn't mean that I didn't exist or that I wasn't true. Because God has seen me. In a crea- he, has, he knows me in a creative sense so that I have an intrinsic orientation towards the divine intellect, and only an accidental relationship with y'all's intellect. So, the principle of transcendental truth means primarily that all existing things are ordered toward the creative knowledge of God's mind. That's what the truth of all things primarily means, that there's a transcendental truth, which is to say that all things are ordered towards God's creative knowledge. God's mind is the measure of a thing's truth. Things are true because they are known by God. They're known creatively, as it were. For us, it's the other way around. We have true knowledge when our minds are conformed to the thing. So hopefully that's what the arrows show, that our minds are being conformed by the things, that when my mind is rightly conformed to the thing itself that's outside of me, um, then I am also just going to disregard Descartes as well, and we won't discuss that either. Um, So we have true knowledge when our minds are conformed to the thing itself, the thing out there. That is, reality is the measure of the truth that we can possess. And again, this is the opposite of how it is with God. God's divine intellect is the foundation for the truth of all things. St. Thomas puts it this way, Pieper points out, quote, the things of nature from which our mind receives its knowledge are the measure for our mind. They themselves in turn receive their measure from God's knowing mind. So the things that exist are the measure for our mind. And God's divine intellect is the measure of everything that is. So the truth of all things consists in their being known by God and being knowable by man. But all things are knowable for us only because they're already known by God. The knowability of all things for us is secondary to their being known by God. And this is something that Pieper really wants to emphasize, that things are essentially knowable, that we can know things is the second meaning of their truth. The deeper meaning of the truth of all things is that a creator knows them. Being knowable, or even being known by a human mind, as I said again, I, continue, I existed yesterday. You know, not just for Peter, but for, you know, with regards to everyone in the room, I existed yesterday, even though you didn't know me, because God knows me creatively. So from this point, this consideration of the truth of all things, Peter takes two very interesting points First. Um, as we said, we started to touch on it that things can be known because they're created. You can know things only because they're created, is they're creatively thought by God. The knowability of things depends on their being created. Pieper puts it this way, quote, things can be known by us because God has creatively thought them. As creatively thought by God, things have not only their own nature— but as creatively thought by God, things also have a reality for us. He makes a striking claim, too, that don't think it's possible to do away with the idea that things have been creatively thought by God and then think you can understand how things can be known by the human mind. Um, someone who is an exact, almost exact contemporary of Peeper's is uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, and Pieper interestingly, says that Sartre and Aquinas are rather similar and their outlook on certain things. I know, Rem, it's surprising. but um, So, in the sense that Sartre says, and this is Sartre's own writing, there is no such thing as human nature because there exists no God to think it creatively. There is no such thing as human nature because there exists no God to think it creatively. For Sartre, the only things that can have a nature are artificial things. Like, I can make, well, I can't personally make a can opener, but one could make a canoper, and it would then have a nature that you could understand because it has a source in a mind that fashions it. But since Sartre is saying that since there is no God, there is no human nature, you can't... And he was railing against um, a sort of post-Enlightenment idea that you could still talk about the nature of man even if you've dispensed with the idea of there being a God. And he's you cannot claim that there's going to be a nature of something if you're denying that there is a thing that is going to creatively make it. Um, And Thomas agrees. He just has the little difference that he believes that God exists. But their framework, their reasoning is the same here. So things are knowable, are intelligible, precisely because they're created. Because they have their first truth in the mind of God. And then there's the second corollary that Pieper draws is that From the truth of all things, things are also unfathomable. They're unknowable at the same time. What does he mean by that? He just said that things, everything is knowable because it's created. But because things are created, they're also unknowable. This isn't to say that there's some kind of core darkness in everything that is. He's saying that there's too much light. Is again, look, they have anything that is created has its source, is a thing because it has its source. In the divine ideas, and that's like trying to look into the sun. That we can know things, and we can know how we think about them, but if we attempt to then understand how they are in the mind of God, it's like trying to you know look right at the sun. There's too much light. Uh, Pieper uses well, it's not his example. He uses the image of an owl in the daytime. I mean, there are there's lots of things you can see in the daytime. But for an owl, it doesn't work. There's too much light. It's a sensory overload. Because being is created, this is Pieper, that is to say, because being is creatively thought by God, it is therefore in itself light, radiant, and self-revealing, precisely because it is. Accordingly, Pieper continues, for St. Thomas, the unknowable can never denote something in itself dark and impenetrable, but only something that has so much light, that a particular faculty of knowledge cannot absorb it all. So things are created, therefore they're knowable. Things are created, therefore they're unknowable. In the final section of this talk, I want to turn to Keeper's understanding of the role that creation plays in love. Again, to, to start this topic, the created nature of the universe is not just one thing about reality, it's a fact that spills over into any subject, any possible topic. Once it has been thought through to the end, Pieper writes in his essay on love, the conviction that the universe has been created inevitably affects our entire sense of being. Why? Pieper teaches that if this is the case, that is, if it's the case that the universe has been created, then it follows that all of reality, things, humans, we ourselves presents itself to us as something creatively conceived, something designed, something that has a distinct purpose from the start. Above all, Pieper writes, we have to view all reality, again, including ourselves, as something creatively willed and affirmed, whose existence depends solely on being so affirmed and so loved. So God's act of creation is an act of love. Love, for Pieper, can be distilled into the simple phrase, how good it is that you are. It's good that you exist, how good it is that you are. And he points out that that's extremely healing. It's very healing if you only think about it. It's true whether we think about it or not, but for it to really affect us and to heal us, you have to consider that. That's the medicine. Think about that. Let it have its effect on you, that knowledge. When people was writing this, and I think this is in the 70s roughly, he notes that in his day, there's a strong sense of a loss of identity. I can only say that uh, this has only gotten worse. And on this issue, Pieper writes, quote, with the peril of loss of identity so much discussed nowadays, it may be asked whether there is any other remedy for such dislocation than this experience of existing because of being absolutely, irrevocably willed by the creator. That, Your identity at its root is that you are a creature. You are willed by a knowing, choosing, loving being. Before anything you've done, before anything you've accomplished, before anything you've thought, you have been spoken into being. You have been constituted by an all-powerful, infinite one who has said to you from the moment of your existence, How good it is that you are. It is good that you exist. It is good that you exist. To think about that should give anyone the ground of their identity. Before any other decision is made, the root of any creature's identity is simply that they are created. The love of the creator is one that is shatteringly primary. The first letter of John speaks about God that he first loved us. Pieper cites uh, C.S. Lewis. um, Pieper points out that absolutely undeserved love is certainly what we need, but it's not what we want. We actually don't want undeserved love. And then he quotes Lewis who says, we want to be loved for our cleverness, beauty, generosity, fairness, usefulness. We want to be loved for something. We have this drive in us that we want to be loved because we're wonderful. And this idea of love that's totally undeserved that didn't reach out and seize it from someone else, is actually the love we need, but it's the love that our pride wants to push against. But as Pieper goes on to note, the divine love, as as Dante would put it, the first lover, does not find anything useful or wonderful about us before before we're created. It's not that God is thinking, well, I've got... A Father Jonah-sized hole in my heart, and I really just, I've just got to create him. He's just, he's just the best. Father Jonah's just so great, I need to create him. No, I didn't exist. There was nothing. There was not no prior me, and there wasn't any sort of lack of God. There was nothing about me that was impressive. God created me without asking me. So, In his relationship with God, it's quite appropriate, Pieper says, for man to be loved more than to love. So we shouldn't be afraid of wanting to be loved by God. Simply just wanting to be loved. That's actually more true to how we are. Wanting to be loved. And then we can love God in return. But first, it's to acknowledge that we are one deep need of God's love. And that God provides that for us in the fact that he has created us. The innate desire to be loved to be affirmed at our roots, that finds its ultimate fulfillment in glory. What's glory for Pieper? It's a hard word to pin down exactly. He calls glory the supreme fulfillment of existence, the glory of eternal life. And if he says, if we're going to accept this definition, there are a couple of other things you need to accept. One, we have to admit to ourselves, Pieper says, that in our heart of hearts, there's hardly anything we want so ardently as to be publicly praised and acknowledged. And two, we have to avoid two extremes. One, we can't fall prey to the ideal of what Pieper calls tight-lipped self-sufficiency, that sort of gloomy resolve to take nothing as a gift. And uh, I would say this is a great danger in our our time. Um, If you go to a gym, odds are you'll see a T-shirt that says, earned, not given. A little swoosh under it. Earned, not, and that's like, that is the sort of American sport mentality. You know, if you, you know, if you, I would say, I, you know, if I'm not a betting, man, but I would say, like, at least 40% of every, every, like, NBA postgame interview is going to involve the idea of, like, oh, yeah, you know, everything is earned. not It's become, like, a, an axiom for an athlete, and therefore, I think for many, at least Americans, certainly, if not all of the West, this idea that things are earned, not given, and that it's weak to say that some things are given to me, which is so unhealthy, if you think about what you are, that you're a creature, everything is given. You didn't earn creation. So that's one thing to avoid. The other extreme is the sort of, he calls it the infantilism of needing constant confirmation. This idea that you must constantly be sort of coddled. And that is, again, a danger for myself. Uh, maybe this is just sort of a, my own, says more about me. Uh, the danger is more the idea of earned, not given. I'm going to take it. It's going to be mine and everyone will respect me for that because I won. It's given, not earned. That would be a much poorly, more, uh, that t-shirt would not sell essentially, you know, you're not going to like walk into, I don't know, whatever the name of the athletic center and see like a whole bunch of given, not earned. And a guy just like sit, sitting, on a couch somewhere, um, you know, that would not be, uh, that would not sell. So what's the difference between God's love and our love? God's love is creative. It is constitutive. Ours is not. So inherit, Pieper writes, inherit and in the concept of being created is the proposition that the creature cannot dispose of the existence it possesses. So even if you wanted to, you couldn't annihilate yourself. You can kill yourself. But you can't annihilate yourself. You will continue to exist. God's saying to us how good it is that you are is itself constitutive of our existence. It's not the same with our power of love. We're not a channel of creative power when we love someone. We can and should turn to others and say, I love you, how good it is that you exist, but our love doesn't create values like God's does. It doesn't make someone lovable, but God's love does. Pieper puts it this way, quote, the emotion, it's good that you exist, has justification solely in the actual goodness of the beloved. This is its basis in reality. And that actual goodness is caused by God in his love. So, just to say in conclusion, God's love is determinative. One who comprehends man to the depths of his soul as a creature, so if you think about the human being as a creature, simultaneously knows that in the act of being created, we are, without being asked, and without even the possibility of being asked, shot toward our destination like an arrow. God's knowledge gives us our nature. He makes us in a certain way. He makes us in a way that can be fulfilled. He makes us for something, for someone. So, like an arrow being shot, when you are created, you are sent on a trajectory. There are certain things, there are objects of your love that can only satisfy your love. And It's set without you having asked for it, and it's God, not to spoil it, it's God. I'm speaking about the creature's ultimate orientation towards God as the only one who can entirely fulfill the longing implanted in us. And uh, to close, I want to quote neither Aquinas nor Pieper, but Augustine. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Thank you. So, as I said, uh, we have time for questions. Yes, Alfredo. I have a question about this, uh, the relationship between creature and by intellect like you were saying, where for the creature, being known actually is important, but it's being known by God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was kind of curious, how do you think, in light of that Peter
1: and uh, Thomas, do you think that idealism would be a applicable label and do you think maybe
0: this shows idealism gets some things right about, you know, philosophy mm-hmm. you know what, what are the differences maybe between this type of I mean I'm, I'm uh, so Alfredo's asking what is I'm saying this because I habitually forget to repeat the question and I'm really thrilled that I remembered it so please delete that last part that I just said um, so Alfredo's asking what's the difference between idealism I'm presuming you mean like I guess German idealism um of I know, this was Kant, um, versus this sort of Thomistic, uh, Puparian way of understanding. Um, I'm just, I just don't know Kant or idealism well enough to um, really comment on that. So uh, I'm sorry. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. It's an interesting question, but it would just be conjecture if I were to really try to you know, weigh in on that. But it's worth looking into. I don't know if you have a, an inkling of a... No, it's, yeah. just, it's just a question. I, just, I yeah. just thought it's interesting to think that there is some truth in the idea that creatures depend on minds in this misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so I guess if I can launch out with, you know, only a strand of contact with what Kant actually thinks. And please correct me if I'm off. There are people in the room who know that I'm going way off. Just tell me. But that like, Kant has an idea that you can't actually really know what's, uh, like, what is true reality Whereas Aquinas and Peeper, no, you can. You can know reality. It's out there. I, you know it. You don't know it entirely. You don't know it as God knows it. But what you do know is true, is real. So that might be one difference, yeah. Yes, Peter. First of all, I really like the, I
2: like the talk in general, especially like the talk. Thank you. Um, oh, this, I mean, it, it brings out the, di- the different dimension of continuous creation versus basically
0: the data mm-hmm. yeah maker. God. And I think people coming from strictly empirical scientific backgrounds are still dealing
2: with the everyday reality of a, a God who's a clockmaker and then takes off and goes mm-hmm. off. And yeah,
0: all the world is just kind of You could choose worse things, things, but yeah,
2: I think that's a real existential. reality. Mm-hmm. But I want, I want to go back to this truth question. Um, I I found the same argument about God and truth in uh, Pieper's book on immortality of the soul, Mm -hmm. and where he's talking about indestructibility.
0: I don't want to go I think there's a platonic element in
2: Pieper. Big time, yeah. Mythesis and participation in something beyond our own making. But the preoccupation I have with those kinds of arguments is that you also, I think, I I think it's, I mean, what he says there about capacity for truth being a proof of the indestructibility of the soul, and what you laid out, I think is very compelling on one level, but you also need, what I would say, in response, you also need more of an account about the relationship to the divine will, because mm-hmm. one could get the impression, I don't think this is peepers or your position, that it's kind of like the coming into being of the God who allows us to partake of the truth is kind of like the opposite of the blip, it's just kind of all at once, mm-hmm. um, but I think that the, the scholastic distinction between the ordained potency and the absolute potency that a presumably would Thomas, uh, uphold. Shows the problem with that—that that there's there's a, a kind of distinction and relationship between God's all-powerful being that could bring all things into being mm-hmm. at once, and what we can perceive either by reason or revelation that is ordained in the power of creation. That's that's incredibly important for showing the difference between both nominalism and Reformation views of creation and the one you laid out. But,
0: mm-hmm. you know, yeah, too far with that. No, thank you for the comment. Yeah, I I, I mean I th- I agree with you. I don't have a. Uh, a proper response at this point. So, yeah, thanks. Yes, sure.
1: Um, so, like,
0: in terms of the difference
1: between something being
0: changed and created, mm-hmm. how does that fit into, like, uh, like the final judgment day? Would that be viewed as a new creation or cool. a change of, like, the current creation? Okay, great. So the question is, um, is the final judgment, the end of the world, is this going to be a new creation in the same sense that we spoke about the original creation or is it, or is it a change? Good. So the short answer is that it's going to be a change. It's a change. Uh, It's not that because creation itself is just the fact of uh, there being God who is being, and then there being other beings that he calls into existence to participate in his being. And anything that happens after that would be change. Now, your, your use of the phrase new creation is uh, important because that's scriptural too. That shows up, um, well, St. Paul will talk about how we are a new creation in Christ. What's he getting at? He's not saying that we are sort of annihilated and then reformed, but he is speaking that we are given participation in a higher plane of existence, a, a greater share in God's life, and that's through grace. So we're to, this talk was primarily about nature, about just God's work in creating um, nature, and then grace brings into the question of things that are above nature, the idea of knowing and loving God as he is in himself. And so there is, that is an elevation of the human person that is uh, so deep, so radical, that the language that you know the Holy Spirit will give to St. Paul to use is, is that of new creation, but it's new creation as it were not new creation in the sense that there's like you have it's not that like god is creating us and then he goes okay time out now we're gonna do it again it's that it's this but elevated mm. yeah thanks good question yeah peter
1: when you were drawing the uh, diagram on the board i couldn't help but kind of like allegory of the cave kind of plato like uh-huh. you know light shining through like humans can't like take in all this light and so my question is To what extent do you think Peter or Aquinas would agree with the kind of Platonic conception? And is there a way to kind of take in more light? Is there a way to kind of leave the cave and kind of see more from God's point of view? Is that through grace? Is that through?
0: Okay. Yeah, so Peter's asking um, if this, again, this idea of the truth of all things has a real platonic ring to it with all the light imagery and the idea of knowing the truth of all things. And um, uh, essentially, could I comment on that? Yeah. Um, well, I think you're right, like as uh Peter is saying, that Pieper especially is uh deeply influenced by Plato. He has a really, in many ways, a very Platonic way of looking at reality. Um and so I think that it's right that we'll see that coming through. Um and this idea that there is um I don't know, God is the one who is good and true and beautiful in its all of its perfection, and that things then participate participate in that and that we know those things and then get a sort of an inkling of what would be the source of those things. So I think there's I think that the allegory allegories are analogy allegory. allegory thank you yeah uh, yeah don't mess up those words. The uh, allegory of the cave um still catches out in many ways um but then the question of how to go farther um one uh just you know study thinking about these things which is you know Peeper is really devoted to, not just knowing that St. Thomas said this about this thing, but whether or not it's true. Like, people sincerely could care less that it's St. Thomas Aquinas who says something. I think his point about Sartre is also telling that he's interested in what is true. And the more you know about what is true, the more your mind is healed from the darkness of ignorance, the more your your mind is brought into contact with reality and with the source of reality so that there can be a gradual way. And then also... That you can be a teacher, you can lead people there. So I think that yeah, the uh, the cave still uh, still works in many ways. Yeah. Uh, Remy, yeah. Uh, okay. Please, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much,
2: very much. And um, about your point there, not given. Do you think another corollary of that in modernity? Uh, what that kind of self positing You can do philosophical versions of all kinds of Cartesianism, mm-hmm. but um, another corollary spiritually is um, a lack of knowledge of self-love.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That, that 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 we don't have a way of loving ourselves, which is after all the dominical command: love your neighbors as yourself. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the doctrine of creation, as you said, that uh, you a chalk. I get agree with Peter. It reminded me. It's an excellent illustration. Um, and it reminded me of feeling of Norwich, seeing the world. A little hazelnut, yeah. In her yeah. hands, and it exists in its fragility because God loves it. So um, I, I think we're very vexed. We both are vaunting, over vaunting about ourselves, and, and really don't know how to love ourselves. And I, I suspect the doctrine of creation
0: ex nihilo, helps with that, too. Yes, yeah, yes. So, yeah, so that, the, the point made is about how um, the Sort of danger of um, not loving ourselves properly can really lead to harm of self. Like, in that um, having an understanding of what it means to be a creature can again be deeply healing towards understanding what it means to love yourself or why you should love yourself. Ultimately, you I mean you love yourself because God has said you're good. You know, the only one who matters has said you matter. And so you matter, you're good. And nothing you do can erase that absolutely nothing that you can do can strike at the root of your goodness obviously you, if you are given the gift of god 's grace and supernatural life within you, you can kill that you can i 'm not saying that um, you know that you can't do anything bad you can people can do very bad things i don 't know if you've noticed that very bad things can happen, but there is no person you can't make yourself a totally entirely bad person because you exist. There is something lovable about anyone that exists um, in that you do need to strike this balance between both, uh, you know, it's not every, everything is earned, not given, and then there's also not a sort of like, you must love me at all times and always tell me how wonderful I am. You have to strike a balance between that, and creation, I think, helps get at that. So, um, yeah, when you talk to that creation being, you know, sort of, like, in the
2: time, but rather... For now, an individual in at- the that brings to my mind the providence, and I don't know if Thomas Aquinas talks about that or if it's a considering. So, I was like, wondering, would providence then be an action of God in time, or mm-hmm. something else that is outside of time? Like as creation is also mm-hmm. outside of time.
0: So. Right. So, providence. The question is about providence. Um, <laughs> providence r- regard. Relates to God's plan for all things that are, which is a set. It is a plan. It is God's knowledge of how the universe will eventually redound unto His ultimate glory, um, His good, um, and that providence um, is not something that is. It's not God reacting to things. God isn't waiting to see you know how I act when I you know walk into a building and say, oh, okay, I got to make sure that my plan works. It's like no, God is outside of time. Which? How do you think about that? God is beyond time, so his plan is one that is going to work, and then it also brings into the questions about God can work, uh, he can bring about something definite through a contingent cause, he can allow for all of that, that would be like five other lectures, um, so I can't, you know, I can't adequately discuss it, but you know, it's a fascinating topic. Yeah. Um, so we'll take a couple more questions. Okay. So first
1: of all, sorry for coming in a bit late, and if you got the answer to my question was
0: Oh, good. So if I don't understand it, I'll just say it. Yeah, I said that right before you walked in. Good. Yeah, yeah. good. Um,
1: so as far as I'm aware, in the 1990s, there was this pretty big scholarly debate about the divine ideas. Okay. Know, Aquinas. There was, I think, one scholar who said that, you no, know, Aquinas thinks that God only had one divine idea, and that you know putting this divine idea into all the different things of creation basically is basically just from His inscrutable will, and. That seems to me more like a later, uh, more voluntarist position, like with Scolas or even the Reformers, and but the majority of people were saying that God actually had an infinity or have you know, many as well as an infinity of divine ideas, uh, and that a divine idea is God's mind insofar as it's reproducible by creation, right? So. Um, and I think this second um, view that God had an infinity of ideas already existing in his mind, and he's just like, you know, instantiating them in creation materially was the one that won out because there's more evidence that Thomas held this view. And right in the early parts of the lecture, there was a lot of you know, emphasis on how, you know, according to Aquinas, creation doesn't presuppose anything. It mm-hmm. doesn't really, uh, it doesn't change it seems to me that's more talking about the material side of things, relatively speaking, because, you no, know, I guess with all things taken into consideration, especially the divine ideas, creation actually does presuppose, you know, these this infinity
0: of ideas. You know, in that one of these ideas is being put onto the earth. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. wondering how you really those sort of mm. things. Okay, so the question is about. Uh, creation ex nihilo and the presupposition of divine ideas. Um, I, would just, I would say, yes, that Thomas is, when he's talking about creation ex nihilo, he's talking about there wasn't any kind of thing, sort of substratum that he's creating out of. There's no, nothing presupposed there. But then if you wanted to use the idea of presupposed in the divine ideas, um, it's dangerous because it injects an idea of temporality into God. So it could be perhaps like a presupposition Secundum quid, like as it were, but I would hesitate just talking about things that are they can be logically presupposed, I suppose. But yeah, so last question, yeah. Um, so you
1: talked about how, like, the people said that uh, Sartre and St. Thomas were arguing like the same thing, right? That like the idea of like, um, there is no uh, human nature because there is no god to like rule it into existence. Uh, is like,
0: can you kind of just explain how that was equivalent to what Thomas was arguing? Sure, yeah. fundamentally based on the fact that yeah. Thomas, like, believes in God. Right, so thank you. Yeah, so the question is about Sartre and Thomas being similar. I probably garbled my language. I mean to say that Sartre and Thomas, in that sense, are operating with the same principles. Um, in their re- Their reasoning is the same. They just disagree on whether or not there is a God. Mm-hmm. So they both agree that if there were a God, Human nature would exist because there's a creatively, there's a creative intellect that is making it. Um, but Sartre doesn't believe in God, so he denies that there is a creative divine intellect. So he then has to say, well, given that logic, there's no human nature. And Thomas, if he were to grant, I mean, that's a God sized grant, but if he were to grant, yes, that God doesn't exist, he would agree with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, thank you again very much. Um, any, I don't know if you